Hey everyone, it's a new year. And this is the same old podcast. It's time for Way Too Interested. So your hobby went from borderline to totally obsessive. Gavin's gonna find out how you got way too interested. Way too interested. Welcome, everybody. It's 2022. Hope you're having a happy new year. Um, welcome to Way Too Interested. My name is Gavin Purcell. Um, this is my podcast where I speak to interesting people and ask them about something that they are obsessed with outside of their everyday lives. And then the two of us talk to an expert and we do a deep dive on that subject matter. Uh, as you've heard me say before, if you've heard the podcast before, um, it's a little bit about getting to the heart of what curiosity is and discovery and why it's interesting, kind of what drives us creatively. So this is a cool thing. I've started doing these again. Uh, it's top of the year. You might have thought I went away for two weeks and I was never going to come back. Surprise, I did come back. Uh, I'm planning on doing this again for a while and I've got some really good guests lined up for 2022. Um, this episode today features um, a really amazing writer, a writer named Chuck Wendig, who I'm a big fan of. Uh, I really learned about him first through Twitter. He's an incredible um, science fiction writer, but also writes a bunch of different genres, horror as horror genre as well. If you want to check out his books, you should definitely Google him, Chuck Wendig, um, and check out his Twitter handle, which is also at Chuck Wendig. I'm pretty sure I'm going to Google this while I'm recording to see what everybody... Let's see here. You can listen to me Google Chuck's Twitter handle right now. I hope you're enjoying it. It is Chuck Wendig, C-H-U-C-K-W-E-N-D-I-G. Really interesting guy. I've found him to be one of the most fascinating Twitter followers. He's got a big following, 185,000 people on Twitter follow him, mostly because he shares a really incredible amount of awesome writing advice. Um, so I definitely suggest you check it out. Um, and he picked a really fun topic. So um, it's a weird one. And I love weird ones, as you know. Um, shout out to the Moss episode. If you haven't heard the Moss episode, go back. Uh, it, that was one of my favorites because of how weird it was. Annie and Helen, thank you for that. Uh, Chuck picked creepy pasta. So if you're not familiar with what creepy pasta is, creepy pasta is basically internet horror stories that are shared on message boards. It kind of picked up in the mid to late 2000s in the aughts. And you'll hear a lot more about the background on it. We're going to hear some more from Chuck um, before we talk to our expert. Uh, and I hope you enjoy. Take a listen. Uh, welcome, Chuck. Thanks for joining me on uh, Way Too Interested. I really appreciate you being here. Oh, man. Thanks for having me. This is cool. You're one of those people who, when you followed me back on Twitter, I was like, oh my God, this is like a really cool thing because this person who I admire, who's a really awesome writer and really smart on Twitter, followed me back. And that's always this weird feeling on Twitter, right? When you have a person that you you know exists out there and does things that are interesting to you and then they follow you back. Well, it's one of the things I actually like a lot about Twitter in general. Like it feels like a really cool place for that. What are your current thoughts about the Twitter medium? Like I, I, I've had like a variety of different experiences, but what are your current thoughts on it? The thing you were talking about where we're kind of, you know, getting to know each other and meet each other. Um, I always think of Twitter's initial stages for me as like a water cooler, right? You have all these people coming in from uh, creative industries or science, medicine, uh, everything. They're sort of showing up and talking to each other. And that's really awesome. But then somewhere along the way, it became a stage. And everybody is on that stage and there is no audience. We are all performing uh, together simultaneously at the same time. Uh, and that was all right, too. It's fine, um, but it's not as ideal because it becomes more performative. It's less about like sort of genuine connection and information. Uh, and then somewhere along the way, it stopped being a stage. And now I think it's just uh, a fight club. And I think we all have to fight. 
the bummer to me is like, I was telling this to somebody the other day where like, they're like, oh, I use Twitter because I want to promote like this version of myself. Right. And it used to feel like it was like, Hey, this is me as a whole individual. I can like this, I can like that. And I can like this, but now it's like, if you say something and then you engage with a group that you didn't mean to engage with, it just launches into its own thing. And it can be really frightening sometimes. You really can. I like, the, the, the a friend of mine calls it context collapse. You just have a single tweet taken out of context and it moves itself into like a new viral sphere. And then next thing you know, the random people are getting a hold of that tweet and then it kind of goes down into the sewer clown area and then it's over, you know, for your mental health. Yeah. I mean, I, one of the things I think a lot about how I use it now, and this kind of speaks to what I want to do in this podcast is it's a little bit about, it's more about like discovery and learning stuff for me. I almost use it like the web in a weird way. Like I kind of go deep on different subjects or people. Um, do you use it that way ever? Or, or how do you, what kind of, what kind of things do you use to kind of like dig in on Twitter? Uh, I almost don't dig in anymore. I mostly use other, other places to dig in all. I try to maintain and curate a good following and, keep myself like, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of skimming along the top of it. Right. <laughs> not going too deep because I'm afraid of what I'm going to find if I go too deep. So like, I know the people that I follow are uh, good, informative, interesting people. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll stay there. I'll stay in those particular echelons of safety. That makes sense. Well, let's talk about going deep really quickly. So like one of the things to me about this podcast is, is like, I believe that everybody has these little special kind of things they get excited about. And in part, when they get excited about them, kind of lights up other parts of their brains. Like, how do you know you found something that's going to let you run for a while, interest wise? Uh, I, it's just because it's like, um, I've got that collector mindset, like uh, being a kid, like collecting magic cards or like those little muscle figures, whatever you want to collect. I feel like I can collect information. And if something feels like it has that compelling, like breadcrumb trail, like I just want to follow this thing along, like a hungry little aardvark, then that to me is, is a subject that I want to maybe uh, deep dive into. I was just was talking to uh, Tim Schaefer. Do you know who Tim Schaefer is? The, I don't know him well, but I know him. I, I'm very much a fan. Yeah. Yeah. He was just on the, uh, in fact, I just re-listened to it, the podcast that is going to go up next. And, and we were talking about this a little bit and he discovered these really fascinating, like, I don't even know how to describe them. They're like these old record players that would be like, there were these plastic records you'd put on top of a toy record player and it would show oh, like a little record. video. Yeah, I used yeah. To have yeah. And he was just like, he said he went, he lost like three days to it. Right. And like when you, that's the, that's the, like what you look for. It's almost like this. I, I every once in a while I worry that like I have like an information addiction in a weird way because like I definitely have addictive personality, but like I can just get lost. And my wife yeah, will look well, over. There's a lot worse things to be addicted to. Yes. <laughs> That's true. That's true. What was the last thing other than what we're going to talk about that you can think of that, that, that happened to you? The big thing was apples. Like that's the big thing that stands out because like I, I went to a farmer's market a couple of years ago and they had all of these varieties of apples. And I'm like, so this is, these are all like Hobbit names. You're just making this up. These are not real apples. I know the apples. These are not the apples. And they're like, no, no, these are heirloom apples. And you're like, what does that even mean? And then, you know, none of them sound like human. They all, they all sound like some Tolkien wrote. So uh, you do like this dive on apples and you discover there's literally like thousands of varieties of apples that we never get to eat. And they all taste profoundly different from what you expect an apple to taste like. And that's fascinating to me that there's this well of human experience that we are simply not experiencing. Like there's this piece of nature and it's a common fruit and we are, it's an alien to us. We just don't even understand how complicated the entire thing can be. And that's awesome. I, the other thing I always think about apples too, and this goes to, I can't remember what it was called, but like, the idea that apple trees are mostly mutations or graphs of each other. Have you, you heard about this? Graph. Yeah. If you, if you want an apple that you like, you can't just plant its seeds. 
because you get a garbage apple or, or at least a random apple. There's like a, you know, a one in 10 chance it's maybe edible, but most of the time it's going to be a, a sort of a high tannin, acidic, nasty bite. So yeah, you have to take rootstock and graft branches of the, the tree you like and want onto the rootstock. And some trees and some rootstock can support multiple types of apples. You can actually have a tree that grows multiple kinds of apple on it. I know. Somebody told me there's a fruit salad tree that exists that you can basically grow all these different kinds of fruits on the same tree, which just is such a fascinating, weird. Anyway, we're getting distracted from your topic. Right. Of right. Is this I, an yeah. Apple podcast? We can it's do that. It's not an Apple podcast. This, that'll be the, one of the other ones. Um, I do want to ask you one more thing before we get into your topic, which is I really admire the advice you give to writers online. Um, I know sometimes you're giving funny, you know, kind of like off uh, weird advice in a, in a way that becomes comedy, but what draws you to want to help people writing? Because I know that I've taken inspiration from some of the stuff you've written, and I'm sure you hear from a lot of people all the time, you know, thank you for posting this. What, what got you started wanting to write things about writing and wanting to help people with writing? Well, initially when I started um, my blog, which is, I think, tw- like it's drinking age now. I think it's, it's an old, old blog. I uh, Really, the only reason I did it was to blog about my experiences writing to me about me. Like I didn't think anyone was listening and I didn't even have metrics on the website. It was not WordPress. It was just an HTML installation. So I would like blog in the void thinking like it's just me talking about me. And it was mostly me sort of exhorting my frustrations and my confusions and talking about the things that I was maybe feeling I was getting better at. Uh, And then one day I did switch over to WordPress uh, and it was weird. It was like turning on the lights in a dark room and realizing you haven't been alone for two years. It's like <laughs> looking on and there were all these people like, oh, we're here now. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. That's what have I been doing for the last several years? Uh, so but it still kind of took on that vibe of like the things that are troubling me or the things that are, are sticking in my head or my craw. I really want to talk about those things. And I, I know I'm having difficulty. So certainly if I'm having a feeling about something or I'm trying to grapple with a particular topic in writing, then there's a good bet someone else out there is experiencing the same thing. And I, I feel like that's actually the, the most powerful thing, both to the way to view writing advice and writing in general, is it's kind of this exhortation against loneliness, this belief that like, if I put this out into the world, uh, it's really for me first, but someone else is going to answer that echo and someone else is going to answer that call. There are other people out there who are like me, hopefully. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, like, it's also writing is weirdly the one of the most loneliest professions too right yeah. so you it, it really is like you spend a lot of time in your room like i've been working on stuff over the last couple of years and like you know if it wasn't for my family you just you don't you, there's not many people you're sharing it with until it's ready to be show, to shared yeah it's surprisingly isolating so that's what that was to go back to the beginning that was sort of one of the great things about twitter initially was it brought people together who were normally kind of in their cave doing their cave paintings and then you can go into the light a little bit and talk to some people until those, there were the deeper cave people that maybe we shouldn't have brought out. Yeah, the deep, the deep caves. We opened up into the deep caves and we should have never done that. Exactly. All right. So let's move on to the topic. Um, would you please state your name and tell me what you're way too interested in? Oh, uh, I am Chuck Wendig and I am way too interested in creepy pasta. Okay, so this is a, a specific one, which I love, by the way. We've had some gen- more general general conversations about like moss or about like jigsaw puzzles. This is a very specific thing. Can you tell me kind of in your definition, what is creepypasta? Uh, in my definition, and we'll see if anybody disagrees with it, if the expert uh, changes that, is it's kind of the modern uh, internet incarnation of urban legends. It tends to be more tech-focused, meme-focused, 
creepy, uh, shareable, whisper down the lane types of stories. They tend to be more modern and more uh, abstract and absurd, I think, than urban legends. Um, but they still have that urban legend, friend of a friend kind of vibe. And where did you first encounter it yourself? Like, I'm obviously you've been on the internet, writing on the internet for 20 years, and, and creepypasta is a, a phenomenon. I would say, if probably, you know, if you think of like the big moment, it was the Slender Man moment, which I think was around 10 years ago. But where did you first come across it? I'm not honestly sure. I feel like the first time I was aware of it was in Minecraft. There were stories about rogue players or like the Hero Brine character who would show up, this like demonic blockhead character who would send glitch your game and steal your soul, whatever it was at that point. It was like the fact that there was some sort of artificially intelligent nightmare scenario hiding inside this game was fascinating. And people believed it. Like people, they tried to find Herobrine and they tell stories about how they saw it. And it, it really fascinating. I mean, that's one of the things I think is really interesting about it is that you mentioned urban mythology or urban myths. Like I'm a big just mythology scholar in general. Like I love learning about mythology. And one of the things that was so interesting about older myths was obviously there were oral stories that were kind of told to other, told to people between each other. Um, it, what's interesting is the internet is a version of that because you're not, it's not professional writing when you're reading like a book, you're not write, reading a professional story. It's almost like a weird way of retelling oral stories because I always think of like the chans, right? The four chans or, or other boards where before, I should say, before the chans all went bad as speaking to the earlier stuff. But the like, deep page, yeah. yeah, the deep web. But like, uh, you know, even on Tumblr or places like that, the writing style is often just choppy or it's like, it's a, blurred out but it's a blopped out paragraph and it kind of adds to the vibe of these things in some ways yeah, because it feels earnest it feels original it doesn't feel like i am composing a story but like oh my god you guys i saw this thing you're like what tell me about it it's a haunted zelda cartridge you're like oh is there is in what is the reason for your like current obsession with it because like again we mentioned this is something that's been around for a bit is there something that like kind of brought it back up in your brain um i don't know i just am fascinated by how like having written a number of spooky scary stories like i'm always interested in how those things happen like how do how do we tell each other these tales do we believe them like is it a you know you watch this sort of the the slender man case that happened with the murder and that that resolved recently so that was sort of on mind and uh you know my kid plays minecraft and he's so he's starting to pick up some of those stories mm. of hearing like hey i heard and you're like well that's not true so let's just get ahead of that right now. This is just spooky stories, not real stuff. But Where is he finding that, like, where does, in the Minecraft world, like, where does that pop up? Is it, like, within the game itself, they're telling each other the story in chat or voice chat? Or is it, like, on the fan pages? Like, where did no, those kind we, of things... No, we try to keep them off that stuff. So it's usually just friends, who I don't, and I don't know where they get it from. But that's, of course, the fun of this topic, right? Is like, you don't know exactly where it comes from and it, at a distance it almost feels like the topics themselves are sentient like they're yeah. like they're trying to be known in some way like a mothman prophecy is kind of like once you look for them they will find you and it's like a <laughs> fascinating idea oh yeah totally I, I i was just listening to um there's another podcast called reply all have you heard of it before yeah sure yeah there's they did a they did an episode on the devious lick are you familiar with what a devious lick is no Okay, so this is a, I don't know how old your kids are, but I had heard about this from my kids. Earlier in this year, in September, there was a meme going around called the Devious Lick. And I'm going to butcher this telling, but the basic idea was it came from a TikTok where a kid did a really dumb prank and then called it like, oh, I just did this Devious Lick. And it was something like, 
he took like the pencils from his teacher's desk, right? Like it was, it was, the idea was like ironically stupid. It took off on TikTok and became like this massive, massive thing. And all these kids were started doing things that were a little bit less stupid, but like pulling, <laughs> pulling the teacher's desk out of the room or, or like removing the toilets from the bathroom, all of which gets a little crazy, right? Yeah. Um, but what was interesting about this podcast and what they did is there was a second list that appeared uh, on somewhere. They don't know where it was, but it was all much more serious things. Like it was, I'm going to slap a teacher or I'm going to do this. And what they kind of dug into and found is that it likely was like one person's list that got, got seen by a parent. And then that list got shared to a Facebook page sure. where all the parents shared it, even though it never really bubbled up on the kid's side. It's like the THC and like the weed candy for Halloween. Yes. No one's given that to children, but Facebook. No, but that's what I'm saying. In this instance, it's like how we're, how we're telling stories is now this collective thing, right? Like it's not just about like what the story was. It's about how the story travels from one place to another and then you're like, well, did the story change? What's real? What's not real? Like, and this all speaks to, I think, this creepypasta phenomenon too. Yeah, because I and I remember being a kid in school and you would hear stories about like what certain kinds of like slap bracelet colors meant or, and they kind of devolved, they moved from like, as you were in elementary school, what they meant to what they meant in high school in terms of what, you know, people would do for over those things. But then also like, different schools you talk to other people who are like a cousin or something like oh no in our school like the pink is supposed to mean something different so like it's there but it's kind of off by a few degrees so it does get retold but mutated in the telling somewhere down the line but now it's much faster with tiktok facebook uh twitter and and i'm not a i'm not a person who's on tiktok but i imagine this stuff is running like rampant over there because i know there's all kinds of like TikTok challenges that are scary and dangerous that probably have never happened. Yeah. But they go viral because people can tell that story and make it seem like it's a true thing. Yeah. I think people get afraid of things that when they project them forward in their brains, right? Like that's the thing I often think of is like in the creepypasta is an example of this too. And I, by the way, I will be very clear. Like I am not a horror person. I really, I have gotten scared since I was a pretty young kid, I think I, I could trace it back to Poltergeist. I think I think I saw Poltergeist when I was about eight or nine. Oh, they they called that a PG movie, and they should not have. No, absolutely oh not. Absolutely not. Yeah, face off like chunks of metal. Oh, that that and there's a movie called Dreamscape. Do you ever see Dreamscape? Oh yeah, Snake Man. Oh, the Snake Man. I even just got heebie-jeebies talking about it. Like those things. I do. Anyway, I'm not a horror person, but I think what's interesting about this to speak to the other thing is that like. Part of horror, this telling of horror stories is they are more fun to be told that way, right? They're more fun to be told one-to-one. And like, and this goes for like, I think, true horror stories, but also for like real true crime stories. It's why true crime is taking off because it's a shared moment of like, can you really believe this? Is that, is that, does that come up in your, do you use that in your writing as well when you're talking about horror stuff? I don't really, um, I mean, my last book, Book of Accidents, sort of deals with a little bit of like legend, but it's more local legend than specifically the creepypasta idea. But it does come up with like in Wanderers, I dealt with a lot of how bad information can go viral very easily. And I find that interesting because, you know, on the creepypasta side, it's theoretically harmless. 
But on the sort of like socio-political culture war side, it gets a lot more insidious. And it's the same kind of thing, right? I have this sinister story about this sinister thing that happened, and I'm going to tell you about it as a warning. And on the kid side, it's like titillating and fun and like, ha ha, flashlights under the blanket. But like on the culture war side, it's like, we better assault the Capitol today. You're like, no, oh, no, no, uh-oh. It's funny. I didn't even think about that, but you're right. It, like it, it, in a lot of ways, the ex- extension of creepy pasta is like the QAnon world, right? Like I'm, just, and I don't want to turn this podcast. We're not, no. we're not doing the anti QAnon podcast, everybody. Just so we're clear, this is a fun, open conversation. Fashion people, yeah. just right, yeah. But but it is an interesting thing because like it's again goes back to how storytelling has changed, right? Like there, there's a different. It's a mythology. And some mythologies are scarier than others when it comes yeah. to that stuff. Well, like, you know, the satanic pizza shop in for yes. the Democrats yes. sounds a little yeah. like a creepypasta. Like, yeah. oh, my God, they're doing what to children in there? And that's it sounds kind of like the satanic panic of the 80s, which also has, has roots in how urban legends pass around information. Yep, totally. Um, okay, before we jump in with uh, Lucia, well, I kind of want to know what are the specific things you're interested in asking her about? Uh, like where it started, um, what are some of her favorites and what, you know, have there been other instances besides Slenderman that have like, that have ramifications in the real world? Slenderman obviously has some real world issues. Uh, and it'd be interesting to know if any others have sort of made that leap in a way that's, that's newsworthy. And then where the hell is it going? Like what, you know, what's next for creepypasta? Cause like, it, you know, as we, cause TikTok again, fascinating to me how information is transmitted there. And is it, is it regaining new life there? Are there specifically TikTok specific creepypastas? Like that's interesting to me. Yeah. I also thought I, I, my research for this, I saw there was one that was based, I don't know if you saw this one, but there was one that based on a legend of Zelda game. Yeah. The ha- haunted cartridge, right? Yeah. I, that was fascinating. Like basically I, uh, I think a save file got deleted and then suddenly that was a, it was a curse was placed on the people. It was like, that's, I mean, I, I probably, if that happened, I'm sure I was part of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, everybody. exactly. All right. Well, we'll be right back um, with our guest, uh, our creepypasta expert, Lucia, and uh, see you in a second. Way too interested. Okay. We'll be right back with our expert, Lucia Peters. But before we do, I want to take a quick break here. Um, and I'm not going to recommend a book this time. I'm going to recommend a podcast. Um, I'm going to mix it up a little bit this year. It's 2022. What am I doing? Uh, anyway, uh, the podcast I'm going to recommend is called Under Understood. It's actually kind of similar in vibe to what we're doing here. It's actually four people. I, I think I might know one or two of them on Twitter, or at least we're Twitter friends, but I love it. It's four people who kind of are, they're journalists, I think, and they're doing like a... They, they do their homework first. So one of them has done their homework on a specific thing. But for instance, the episode I just heard was about Pizza Hut and the restaurants that Pizza Huts are or used to be. If you remember, there was a little Pizza Hut, little hut thing above them. <laughs> it's, it's a Pizza Hut. So yes, it was a hut. Uh, but anyway, the show's great. Uh, I can't recommend it more highly. It's called Under Understood, and you can find it on all, all podcast platforms. Go check it out. And now we're going to be joined by Lucia Peters, who is a, a writer and a creepy pasta expert. Get ready for what is going to be a kind of weird journey through the internet. It, nothing is uh, NSFW in this episode, but also like slightly creepy uh, and definitely some stuff you're going to want to Google afterwards. So check it out. 
right, we are now uh, excited to bring on uh, Lucia Peters, our guest, uh, our creepy pasta uh, expert. Uh, so, Lucia, first, before I kind of let Chuck ask a bunch of his questions, which he has many of, um, can you describe a little bit um, about? First, tell me a little bit about yourself and your background, and then and then kind of how you got interested in creepy pasta in the first place. Uh, sure. Um, actually, interestingly enough, my background is originally in the theater. Um, I was a director and a stage manager for a long time. Uh, I have an MFA in directing from the New School for Drama. It's a thing I went to school for. So I've been uh, very into pulling stories apart and uh, kind of putting them back together after learning what makes them tick for, you know, presenting them for, for wider audiences. I have also always been interested in really spooky stuff. My, my master's thesis was a play about a serial killer. Um, That's awesome. I also, I finished graduate school when the recession was like right kicking off. Um, so I obviously needed to pay my bills. Um, and for uh, reasons that I, I'm still a little baffled by, uh, people were willing to pay me to put words on the internet. And at the time, particularly, this would have been like roughly 2010, websites that focused on pop culture were also still interested in like not just entertainment and celebrity news. They were also interested in web culture and nerd culture and um, things weren't quite as either commercialized as they were in in entertainment um, and also not quite as like quite as specialized so you didn't like necessarily have to just go to like one individual site to find stuff on web culture um, and around that time there was a New York Times article weirdly enough uh, about creepypasta and I had kind of seen some of these stories floating around the web but this was a, a, an article that uh, is still hilarious to me that it this is what really brought the form to my attention because the the New York Times, they are good about many things. They have generally been very behind the curve on what's happening online. <laughs> they were not where you went to go, especially 10 years ago, not where you, not where you went to find out what was happening online. Uh, but they had this like short little article uh, about creepypasta that kind of just gave a general introduction to it. It was pegged to one particular story that had uh, kicked up around 2006, so a couple of years prior. Um, and it talked to a couple of like psychologists about like why we're interested in these things and why they make kind of like a nice little diversion. Um, while all of this was also going on, um, so simultaneously we have, I am starting to write for a living. I am learning about creepypasta as a more formal thing. And then also, uh, I am gifted a, a subscription to the Something Awful forums. <laughs> and this was maybe a year after Slender Man kicked up. So yeah. I had access to the archives. I found that thread. I'm sitting there alone in my apartment one night, <laughs> like reading through this whole thing. Um, and I, I got the idea to pitch a feature to the site that I was working for at the time, which sadly no longer exists because the internet is not forever, um, called Creepy Things That Seem Real But Aren't, that was going to be examining modern urban legends, largely ones that were spread across the internet, and kind of figuring out what, what made them scary and what made them feel real. Um, and kind of one thing led to another. <laughs> so ever since then, that sort of has become my primary beat. Um, I've now got, you know, I have bylines at, uh, you know, outlets ranging from the bustle, from bustle to the toast about, you know, like, is this particular creepypasta real? What makes it feel real, even if it's not? Um, I also write and run the website uh, that goes to my machine where I dive into all of this stuff. Uh, and in 2019, I published a book about ritual-based urban legends and uh, what are sometimes called ritual pasta. It's like a little subset of creepypasta. Whoa, uh, no, hold on, define that, define that for me. What, what is ritual pasta, just so we have a sense? If you know, like, the Bloody Mary legend which is something that y'all probably grew up with, because I certainly did. It's that, but like on steroids, basically. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, it is, it's, it's a particular subgenre of creepypasta that is uh, based around like weird games or rituals. Um, and the, 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 my favorite ones are the ones that kind of like seem like something you really could play. Like, you know, we all played Bloody Mary. We all, you know, shut ourselves in a bathroom with a flashlight and chanted her name in a mirror, you know, however many times. And uh, there are some that are 
they they definitely run more fictional than than things you could actually do. But um, so yeah, the Dangerous Games to Play in the Dark is the name of the book um, that was published in 2019 by Chronicle Books. That's awesome. Okay, Chuck, shoot away. Let's let's hear what you got. All right. So what is it that makes creepy pasta creepy pasta? Like separate from urban legends of of old. Uh, what is it that sort of defines creep pasta as its own thing? Uh, largely the internet. <laughs> it is a specifically internet-based thing. Um, I do think it's it, exactly what creepy pasta is is a little bit of a tricky question to untangle because it's evolved a lot over the years. Um, but the term itself kind of tells us a little bit about what it was in sort of like its original sense, quote unquote, insofar as there is one. Um, it originally it derives from the term copy pasta. Uh, which is itself a corruption of copy-paste. Um, y'all probably know this. It's those chunks of text that you would just see copied and pasted, copied and pasted, copied and pasted over and over and over again on forums, in emails. Like sometimes they were uh, like chain letters, uh, like apocryphal stories and anecdotes, sometimes just like things meant to troll people, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, it's hard to pin down the dates for where all of these terms kind of came from, but we know it was in use roughly around 2006. Um, some people think it originated on Usenet. Some people think it originated on 4chan. No one is really in agreement about it, but we know that it was it was bobbing around the internet by that point. Creepy pasta is copy pasta that's creepy. <laughs> you know, it, they were they were originally very short pieces of horror fiction that again were copied and pasted all over the internet. Again, shared on forums, shared in emails. They always had a text element. That's kind of one of the big things. They they always had some sort of written word might just be a couple of sentences, but there was always that. Um, and sometimes though, it could be a couple of sentence pa- sentences paired with like an image or a short video, something like that. Um, authorship was frequently unknown. Not always the case. We do know some of the early ones, but there are a lot of like really early creepypastas that we still don't really know who wrote them. We don't know where they came from. Uh, we've traced them back as far as we can, but they might have existed before that. We don't, we don't really know. There are a few exceptions to all of this. I, I know... Some people consider the black-eyed kids or black-eyed children, if you know that story. Um, some people consider that a creepypasta. You don't know uh, to one. me, to me, it's more of an urban legend. Um, and this one, yeah, what is it? Can you tell? Can you let us so know? So the black-eyed kids, um, they are. I mean, kind of think Village of the Damned. <laughs> They're small children with, you know, eyes. If you if you look at their eyes, they will be just completely black. They are kind of said to approach you. Um, you could be in your car. You could be at home. Uh, they will try to convince you to let them in because they need help. You should probably not let them in. <laughs> it's a little vague about what happens if you do. Uh, most of the stories kind of go with, well, I thought about it, and then it seemed like a bad idea, so I drove away. Um, it, it's it's sometimes said that these stories picked up, like they originated sometime in the 80s. Um, I do know the one that is kind of pinned as one of the, the main Black Eyed Kid legends um, was uh, actually only dates back to 1996, which is still early for creepypasta. Um, and that was a, a, a journalist named Brian Bethel. Um, he wrote on it was a news group. I can't remember if it was a like specifically a Usenet thing, but you know, early internet um, about an, an incident where he had encountered the Black Eyed Kids in a, in a parking lot in somewhere in Texas. The thing with this one is that his story, A, we know who wrote it. He's a real guy. <laughs> he's, and he's spoken a lot about this over the years. He's very adamant that it was real. Um, kind of depends on where you fall on, the, on the, the, the realm of the supernatural. I tend to be a little more skeptical myself, but some people aren't. That's cool. Um, <laughs> but, and, and with this one, it's more like the idea of the Black Eyed Kids has been passed around as opposed to the exact text. So for that reason, it feels more like an urban legend. It's more one of those things where you kind of say, oh, I heard about this thing. Right. So it's like a crossover. It starts off urban legend, but doesn't get to full creepypasta. Is there an originating like creepypasta piece? Like, is there the sort of the fundamental 
origin point for creepypasta or is it kind of too hazy? It kind of it kind of just kicked up. And actually, to be honest, some creepypastas do come directly from uh, urban legends. Um, sure. I, I, I tend to think of creepypasta as sort of being divided into roughly three different eras. There are the early ones, which are like, you know, the creepypastas in that, that, that truest sense where it is the same text copied and pasted. Um, here we get stuff like, uh, there's a story that I usually call the woman in the oven. It doesn't always have a name. Um, <laughs> it's just like maybe three paragraphs. It's very short. Um, and it's uh, one of the rare third person creepypastas. A lot of the time they're, they're told in the first person, but it's one of the rare third person ones. But it reads more like a news story or like something that you're reading in a history book. Telling about how um, police were called to like some crime scene. It was a house. In the house, they found an oven. In the oven were the remains of a woman. There was a video camera nearby that had clearly been recording it, but there was no tape in it. Um, when they checked a well outside, there was a videotape down the well. Uh, when they played the tape, they saw a really disturbing film, <laughs> because those factor very prominently in a lot of these stories, uh, of featuring a woman opening the oven, crawling in, closing it, the oven kind of shaking around a bit, and then going still. Weird. Gets weirder, though, because where it ends is the, the mysteries that we still don't know about the case. And again, this is within the, the narrative. Who put the tape down the well? Because it obviously wasn't the woman. So there had to have been someone else there who did it and why. And also, uh, and this is one where I, I like this because it leaves a lot that's uh, a lot up to the imagination. It, it kind of lets you decide what the story really means. Is the stature is what it's usually pegged as of the woman inside the oven did not match the stature of the woman seen in the tape. Mm. So, you know, were they the same people? You know, is this like some kind of thing that is perpetually happening over and over and over again with different people? We don't really know. See, this is one of the great things, by the way, that I think about creepypasta is that urban legends felt like they kind of often had an arc to them, like a story. It was a complete thing. There was almost a lesson, not quite as clean as like a yeah. fable, but there was a lesson or something you needed to know. They about. moralize in a way that creepypasta yeah. doesn't necessarily. Creepypasta is just weird, absurd, <laughs> yes. scary meme business that doesn't always, it's just a lot of questions. And the creepiness factor often comes from the sheer inability to answer those questions. Yeah. Is that what yeah. else defines creepypasta for you outside of like internet transmission? Yeah, I tend, they are a lot of, um, so the woman in the oven for what it's worth, the oldest version of that one I, I found dates back to 2008, it might be older, but there are a few other stories that um, like, if you know the Ted the Caver story, that website kicked up in 2001. Yeah. Um, on Angel Fire, good old, yeah, good old Angel Fire. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it only would have been better if it was GeoCities. <laughs> but, um, but so, yeah, you know, we get a lot of these things that are kind of happening in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, the uh, most, um, like, good creepypastas, I would argue, and again, this is overgeneralizing in some respects, but they have a level of believability. I think that's one of the things. They're often presented as something that actually happened. Um, and that it has a lot in common with urban legends in that in that respect, um, where urban legends are often like, oh, did you hear about this thing? <laughs> um, they're often told in the first person, but not always. Sometimes, though, it, they're formatted more like found documents or records or letters, uh, transcripts, reports, you know, something that's just sort of designed to look like a primary source. Um, and they're also often told with a level of remove. Um, and for me... This is, again, you think about urban legends, and they're not the person telling you the story. It didn't happen to them. It happened to their cousin's best friend's boyfriend or something like that. Yeah, Yeah. so you don't you don't know the person that it allegedly happened to. The teller might not even know that person. With creepypasta, I would argue that that level of remove is the Internet, because although the narrator is usually directly involved in some way, either it happened to them or it happened to one of their friends and they're kind of trying to piece together the mystery of what happened. We still don't know them. You know, that level of remove is there by the internet. 
Um, so those are kind of the, the biggies, the biggies for me. Beyond that, though, like there's so many different subgenres that it could go off in so many different ways. Uh, yeah, I have a quick question just to dip in here. One of the things about that timeline makes me think about it is the Blair Witch Project. Like, yeah. did the Blair Witch Project have like an effect on this genre? Because when I think about the Blair Witch Project, it's very much what you just described, except it was this mass media event that tons of people saw, right? Did people take that away from that and like, kind of go to the internet with that idea? It's possible. Um, I have looked at the Blair Witch Project more in conjunction with web series, with like spooky web series. Uh, but there's overlap there too, because, you know, a lot of the early Slenderman web series, you know, those occurred in a post Blair Witch Project world. Uh, and I think that's very notable. Um, well, there's a there's a feeling here that feels like The Ring too, right? Because even though The yeah. Ring is a more antiquated piece of technology, it's the idea almost in a black mirror sense that there's this piece of technology that has infected you. It's got a curse on it. It's the haunted Zelda cartridge or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, that's, like, one, yeah. Of, that's, that's one of the biggies. Like that one and actually the um, the Majora's Mask, uh, the haunted Majora's Mask cartridge. Um, Can that you tell one, that story, by the way? Because I think we, 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 alerted, we alluded to it, but like I find that one amazing. So maybe just give us a quick It's background. very It's very complicated. It went on for much longer than anyone, I think really like most kind of general people think it did because it eventually turned into like this big ARG that I don't think they ever really yes. finished. Yeah, there was an ARG that built up. Yeah, but right. it all centered around a, a guy who um, he was writing... I probably on 4chan, I'm trying to remember which form it was. Um, the, the actual author's name is Alexander D. Hall. He's the guy who created it. Found a uh, Majora's Mask cartridge, um, you know, at a garage sale and remembered really liking the game when he was a kid. I did. <laughs> it was a weird game, but, you know. Um, but so he, he, he took the cartridge home and he started playing it. Uh, he noticed when he turns it on for the first time that there's already a save file in there. So he starts another one. Um, and kind of the more he plays it, weird stuff starts happening and it starts to be apparent that the cartridge is cursed or haunted in some way, possibly by a guy named Ben who may or may not have drowned. <laughs> so this is why a lot of people know the story as Ben drowned. Ben drowned, right. Because that's one of the the uh, the existing um, save files. Every time he boots up the game, like they often change and sometimes they're Ben drowned. And, you know, that, that was kind of the, the, the big one that sort of tips him off as to, oh, something's not right here. The thing that made this one really notable is that he made videos to go with it. Um, and he did a lot of trickery with the cartridges to kind of like, you know, make things glitch out and look really, really weird. Again, really notable at the time. At that point, we had mostly only seen uh, like video based creepypastas were mostly like one short video and then a couple of sentences about it. This really incorporated all of those things together. And that I want to say was roughly 2010. Let me check my notes. Yeah. So that one was, was around 2010. And that was kind of in what I usually refer to as the golden age of creepypasta, mostly because like here we start seeing uh, most of the like really iconic stories from the genre start appearing during this like 2010 to 2015. There's a little bit of overlap on either end. So like again, Slenderman was 2009. Uh, Candle Cove by Chris Straub is 2009. So there's a little bit of a, a little bit of that. Uh, but here we see identifiable authors. The storytelling is much more complex. The writing is generally better. There's still a lot of bad creepypasta out there, but the writing is a little better. Um, and again, that's also when the New York Times article was published. So that kind of tended to that put things more into the public eye than I think they had been at that point. So that that was kind of one of the, the big heavy hitters there. And then kind of following that golden age, um, it, it was kind of like the contemporary modern age, and that's from 2015 roughly to the present. Um, and what, here it's, if you don't mind me asking, like the present era is, for, I mean, first of all, we've seen that something like Slender Man has jumped to reality in both ways that are both pop culture and also true crime news. Is there anything else that has made that kind of jump? I mean, Candle Cove obviously has 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I would argue characterizes the the, uh, the modern era is that now we see creepypasta being commercially viable. Um, you know, we get Channel Zero because that started airing in 2016. And that was like, you know, initially when it was airing on sci-fi, it moved over to Shudder later on. But like we have a major television cable channel airing a show based on creepypasta. Um, that is pretty big. Um, we're starting to get a lot of academic research getting published then. There have been several books on Slenderman specifically that have been published in the last like five years or so. Uh, we start getting movies based on them. They're not necessarily good movies, <laughs> but there are movies. Um, you know, there, there, there's, a, there's a midnight game movie called The Midnight Man that came out in like 2016. Um, there is a Slenderman movie based specifically on the Marble Hornets mythos which came out in 2015 um there is an elevator game movie currently in the works and that actually is another kind of real world connection in a way but it's it's a little different than the, the slenderman one i a little bit of a disclaimer i try to be careful about the way i talk about these cases uh because i think there is one of the things that i grapple with a lot with just the true crime machine in general is that there's a tendency to reduce these cases down to stories specifically for consumption. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, we can't do that. We can't talk about, you know, people who died in cases that are connected in some way with creepypasta the same way we would talk about like who killed Laura Palmer because Laura Palmer's not real, <laughs> you know, and all of these other people, they're real. And also these cases are very recent. So a lot of the time, the people who are involved in them uh, or the people who loved them and who are still mourning them are still alive. Um, so there's kind of a lot of, wibbly stuff and the way some people talk about it that I don't particularly like. Sure. But um, so the thing with the elevator game um, is there, this is the Elisa Lamb story. Um, if you guys, if you guys know that case. So yeah, in 2013, um, she, Elisa Lamb, she's Canadian. Her parents are from Hong Kong. She took a solo trip to California. Um, she was last oh, yeah, there's seen. the Netflix documentary about this, yeah. right? And I, granted, yes. I haven't okay. watched that one again because I had kind of heard some things that made me want to like, not really give it my viewing figures because it felt not super ethical. So I was kind of like, okay, maybe sure. I'll pass on that. Yeah. Um, the one thing I did like that the Netflix did point out was that it often demonized people that people online chose to be the, the killer yeah. and then had nothing to do with any of these people. And they're like, we did it. True crime figured it out. The internet solved this murder. Cause that's like, the Ooh. thing. So, so she went missing on January 31st. Like that was the last time she was seen. Um, and then like three weeks later is when she was found in the water tank, specifically because of the release of the surveillance video from the elevator. There, there was wild speculation about her death all over the internet pretty much from as soon as the case started, which again, it's, it made me feel a little weird. The weirdest theory though, and the one that I dislike the most is, um, the people started saying that she was playing the elevator game and that she died because she was playing it wrong. Again, I hate this mm. theory. <laughs> it's, it's really horrible for a lot of reasons. Now, what is the elevator game? Just so we have listeners who may yes. not know. So the elevator game, this is probably the, uh, the, the kind of ritual pasta that I have come back to the most largely because it has such phenomenal staying powder power. Um, Everyone is always interested in this one for a lot of different reasons. It kind of like has ebbed and flowed. It's also, this is one of the, the probably the most widely known non-Western creepypastas. Uh, it's, again, hard to track. The biggest kind of dive into the history that I went to, the oldest version of this game I was able to find um, was a 2chan post um, in 2008, which means it... I think at this point it was probably Japanese in origin. Early versions of it were still also, uh, it made its way to Korea very, very quickly. So it's also like all over Korean social media there and has been for for many years. Um, And what this was, this is, it's formatted as a a ritual. It's like a little set of rules. And the point is, is that you, you go to a building that has at least 10 floors and an elevator. You get into the elevator alone. You visit the floors in a particular order. And then when you've kind of done that whole sequence, you press the button for the first floor. If you have done all of this correctly, um, and also no one has got on the elevator with you while this is happening. You can only do this alone. Um, then instead of going down to the first floor, the elevator is supposed to rise on its own to the 10th floor. And when the doors open, you will be 
in just what usually kind of translates as another world. It doesn't really say if it's like what kind of other world it is. <laughs> it's, it's, it's usually described as looking uh, very much like your own, but maybe a little bit off. You can choose to get off the elevator if you want to. Uh, you don't have to. And uh, you are also, so the original versions of the legend mostly stop here with one caveat. The final note is always that uh, when you stop at the fifth floor during that whole big sequence where you're trying to get there in the first place, a woman may or may not get on the elevator with you. If she does, you are not to look at her. You are not to talk to her. The phrase that is usually used to describe her, um, I love this in, in, granted, I'm not fluent in Japanese, so a lot of this is me using various translation softwares to kind of piece it through. But the phrase that is usually used to describe her translates to something like, the person is not a person. It's very clunky in English, so I usually have dealt with this by saying that she's not what she seems. You know, she's she's something else. She's not human. Right. But the, the whole thing is that, like, if you talk to her, most people, I think they usually envision, you know, like the, the Sadako character from The Ring, you know, the, the black hair and the, and the white dress which is usually visual shorthand for a very specific kind of Japanese ghost. If you talk to her, she might she might never let you go home is kind of the implication. It's very sparse in its details. Um, and that's one of the kind of the fun things about a lot of the, the Japanese creepypastas in particular. They leave a lot up to the imagination. And I, I sometimes feel like the abrupt stops are because, well, we don't know what happens next because no one has ever come back to tell us, you know, something like that is sort of what it usually feels like to me. Um, eventually, the, the legend did start to evolve such that there was a way to make the return trip. Um, some people, uh, like some sets of rules will say you just do that original sequence visiting all of the uh, the floors again in order, the same way you did initially. Um, others say you have to do it in reverse. It's kind of up to you. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I know um, the, the TV show Evil did an episode that yeah. was... Based on that, yep. Yep. And I know um, the anime Other Side Picnic has also incorporated that legend into it fairly recently. Kaz, let me ask you a question about how does that, how does, so how does that creepypasta then get connected with this real world death. Like, like yeah. where does that come together uh you know a lot of it it's 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 just randos on the internet looking at it and being like hey this reminds me of a thing like that's really what it is um i mean i can tell oh you roughly when the connection that i think started to happen um based on a combination of google trends data and also my own site analytics on like when there was a huge spike in traffic to um the first version of the elevator game that I ever wrote, which was, you know, back in early 2014. Um, by the end of 2014, people were like all over, all over this theory. Um, again, mostly just random people on the internet. Um, there have been, there's been a, a big uh, kind of push in recent years to tamp down on this again, because like, it's, it's very clearly a story. Like, this is not what was going on. Even if you just watch the surveillance video, it's clear that this is like yes, her behavior is a little is a little odd, a little unusual, and again, we'll probably never know, and that's really sad. But it it it's I again I think really really disrespectful to chalk it up to like just this weird you know story that's been floating around the internet for for a while. Yeah, yeah, it's, it seemed to be a, unfortunately a real world tragedy. Of yeah, and the 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 thing with like the people who are like, well, she died because she played it wrong. You know, they're pointing to the fact. Well, look at what she's doing in the in the video. It's not the way you're supposed to play the game. And I'm like, yeah, it's a logical fallacy. <laughs> like, right. That, that doesn't. Right. You can't make that. You can't connect that line. So it's mostly just people grasping at like really tenuous straws, um, and wanting to play armchair detective, and again, kind of treating it like it's a story. Yeah, part of this is like is like using horror. Like what Chuck and I were talking about, like horror. I'm not. A, by the way, I, I said to Chuck, I'm a, I'm not a big horror fan. When you <laughs> tell these stories to me, I still feel like I get creepy inside. But part of it for me, horror movies have always been like you can experience it out here so that inside you can have some way of dealing with stuff, yeah. right? Like, yeah. like that's yeah. a way of explaining, right? Like it, it's, uh, we don't know what happened to that woman and it's a huge tragedy, yeah. but like maybe 100%. that's an explanation and I don't feel so weird then because it's explained. In, in some yeah. Yeah. As long as I don't play the elevator game, it won't happen to me. <laughs> 
Exactly. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, yeah, so that I, I think is absolutely the, the case. And, and I do think like there's something, I mean, both uh, just genre fiction kind of more widely, but also like ghost stories and creepy things. It is a way that we deal with things that are like so terrible that we otherwise can't really comprehend them. It kind of helps give us form to them. It gives it a little more shape. It gives us something that we can conquer. So it, I, I do sort of see the draw of that there. Again, it was just, this was one of those things where it was just armchair detectives all over the place, just kind of leaping all over it and me being like, oh no. And what is sort of interesting that um, the difference I think between the elevator game and, and the Elisa Lamb connection and the Slenderman uh, case in Wisconsin is that the Slenderman case, like that, that was directly, like Slenderman is directly involved there. The kids were very, were very deeply into the mythology. Um, I think that whole thing is more of a case of like these kids being failed by, you know, their communities, by, by society, by a healthcare system that makes getting access to mental health care really, really hard. Um, so I think it's more about that than anything else. But with Elisa Lamb, this is just the story is superimposed on top of the case by people who have no connection to it, you know, just, just because it's kind of like fun, quote unquote, to theorize about. So yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> so like if, if currently, like, I know it kind of, you know, it starts off Usenet and email and everything the way early virality and then moves into sort of like, you know, something awful and 4chan, but t- Tumblr too, I know a huge place. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about like sort of modern iterations. I mean, is there, a, are there TikTok creepypastas and like what's next for creepypasta down the line? Uh, well, on TikTok, people seem to be more interested in like summarizing creepypastas. Uh, and, and again, there's a little there's a little bit of ethical gray area here because they're often doing it without like permission and not sending you to the source where the story actually is. Um, what I actually there are a couple of things that I find interesting to look at in the modern era. Um, one of them there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on in the world of visual art from visual artists. Um, like I, I don't know if you guys know Trevor Henderson. He's a Canadian artist. Um, he created Siren Head and Long Horse are kind yeah, of like those two those two big characters. I saw um, a great Halloween costume. Someone doing Siren Head. It was awesome. <laughs> everything was phenomenal. yeah yeah. So um, Trevor, what Trevor really excels at, like in addition just to terrific creature design, like it's it's just the, the creatures he comes up with are just incredible. Um, is he has one of his uh, kind of hallmarks is he takes those characters and he, he, he inserts them into existing like photographs or backgrounds. Uh, and then oh, he writes right. a couple of sentences about them a lot of the time, which kind of gives you a, that classic creepypasta format where you have the image and a couple of, couple of sentences about it. And also gives you this really great found footage feel, which I love. Um, so those characters, I think the thing to bear in mind is there's also creepypasta isn't always in the public domain. Like Slenderman is actually not in the public domain. You know, he's, was originally owned by the person who created him. Uh, Eric Knudsen is the guy. Um, you know, tr- Trevor Trevor owns Siren Head and Long Horse, and a lot of the time people kind of mistakenly think that they're just like general creepypasta monsters who are in the public domain, and they're not really so. But there are a lot of artists who are doing similar work to that, um, and that's really interesting to me. Um, and then there's also the back rooms. Uh, this has kind of been one of my my latest uh, little hobby horses um, as far as all of this goes. Um, the back rooms are... I kind of file them under the section of like, is this creepypasta? And you kind of think of like that butterfly meme. Um, (laughs) 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 And this one, this one is really recent. The the back room is kicked up um, 2018, 2019. So last, last couple of years. Um, And their Genesis is again, very much classic creepypasta. Uh, What happened in 2018, um, and a photograph, like it might be a photograph, it might be like a procedurally generated image. We actually don't know. There's a mystery about where this, this image comes from of just like, kind of the grossest like waiting room slash office park you can imagine where like the carpet is really manky and the walls are all yellow and you know that like Ugh. the fluorescent lights are just sitting there buzzing incessantly like it's the kind of image that, that you, kind of, when you when you look at it um so this photo was posted on fort on uh 
trying to remember if it was 2chan, 5chan, or 4chan. I think it was 4chan. In 2018, under uh, a thread that was just called Cursed, Cursed Images. You know, it's that, that kind of... I always love Cursed Images. Cursed images <laughs> are great. Um, and then in 2019, that image was reposted under a thread that was called Unsettling Images. And this one was encouraging people to post images that give you that weird little feeling when you look at them. Um, and then later on down in that 2019 thread, someone added a little chunk of text. So again, we have image and we have text. Um, and it's I think it's just two sentences. I can read it to you uh, because I wrote this down. Um, it's, it's so paired with this really gross yellow carpet walls image is this little piece of text that says, if you're not careful and you no-clip out of reality in the wrong areas, you'll end up in the back rooms where it's nothing but the stink of old moist carpet, the madness of mono-yellow, the endless background noise of fluorescent lights at maximum humbuzz, and approximately 600 million square miles of randomly segmented empty rooms to be trapped in. God save you if you hear something wandering around nearby, because it sure as hell has heard you. <laughs> and it's just wow. that. So it's, nice. it's like, again, that classic creepypasta right there tells a really short little story in those things. Um, and then... People took it and ran with it. So where it evolved after that is almost something you can kind of engage with the idea of the backrooms uh, however you feel like. There are, like Slenderman, it sort of developed a, a vast array of different mythologies. Um, there are kind of three primary schools of thought about what the backrooms are. Um, one of them is there are no levels, just the backrooms. And that is limited to just what you see in that original meme. Um, and there is a subreddit called, I think, r slash true backrooms that this is what they explore. And they're, they're less interested in developing a mythology and more interested in like what kind of feelings this whole concept elicits in you. I'm in finding images that recreate that. Um, then there is the three level system, which looks like the original meme, but they're, they're like, it's, it's not really clear how you get from one level to the other. But once you get into the back rooms, you can descend to levels of progressive danger. And there are, there are monsters roaming around that one. And then there is the extended lore, which anything goes. <laughs> there are infinite levels. You could find anything there. Um, and this one has kind of um, coalesced around a wiki dot. Um, and so in, in that respect, there is kind of like a central canon for this one. Um, and what the people who run the wiki dot, anyone can contribute to it, you know, it's kind of this big collaborative fiction project, which is really cool. I enjoy that a lot. Um, it owes a lot to the SCP Foundation. Uh, which is something that I don't always classify as creepypasta. It feels like something a little different to me, but it it also, there is an argument to be made for the SCP Foundation being creepypasta. And it did... What, the, wait, what is that? What is okay, this SCP this Foundation? Is, this is um, the, also a big Wikidot thing. Um, the SCP Foundation, it started around 2009. So again, we're kind of like in that like late, early age, or, uh, you know, early golden age. That's a very awkward turn of phrase. Um, but it's, the idea is that there is this government facility somewhere who, uh, when it's, it's kind of X-Files-like, you know, when weird stuff happens... These guys go, they get the thing, and they bring it back. So SCP stands for um, Secure, Contain, Protect. And so it's there. Uh, so the the original Wikidot was just all of these like artifacts and things that they had collected, and like all of the documentation on that, and then studying it. Um, I think the video game Control has some uh, reflection. Yeah, yeah oh, it was actually it was, okay. was Control. Control was actually, I believe, directly influenced by the SCP Foundation. Okay. Um, also, if you know a little indie game called Containment Breach, that came out of one of the most infamous. Um, SCP Foundation uh, little characters. I do love how much game culture ties into yeah. creepypasta. Yeah, I mean, because there were also a lot of Slenderman games too. 
Um, yeah. That kind of that kind of kicked up, and a lot of it has been happening in the indie scene, which is you know fun. I like that. Um, but so the SCP Foundation, it's like people can create you know an artifact. You know sometimes there's like a play that when it's performed, it makes audiences go bananas, uh, and not in a good way. <laughs> you know there is the 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 artifact that features in Containment Breach is like this weird looking kind of statue thing that like if you it's it's kind of like a Doctor Who situation. If you stare at it, it can't move, but if you turn your back, it, it will come get you and it will tear you to pieces. Mm. And so the but the way the reports are always written it's like you know they're they're written in very institutional language a lot of the time there's reading between the lines to like know exactly oh that that sounds not great um you know bits are redacted um and they kind of over the years um it's also you know mythology about like the people who work at the facility have have sprung up um and so again uh, it's another collaborative fiction project and you do have to like workshop your stuff very heavily before it's kind of accepted into the uh into the to the main canon but it's run out of a wiki dot so like anyone can contribute, you know, anyone can participate in it. Um, so with the backrooms, what I find really interesting is that we have something that really originated as a true creepypasta and has evolved into something that is kind of like part the way Slenderman developed and part the way the SCP Foundation developed. So now everything is sort of becoming more than the sum of its parts. And I, that that is something that I... I look forward to seeing where that goes in the future because that has a lot of really interesting possibilities, I think. Yeah, I, I have a question about that. When you talked about people owning their stories, right? Because this is something I think a lot about collective stories and how they're told. But then like in, a, in an example like that, the overall story is a collective story, really. It's like what Chuck and I were even talking about, urban myth. Like it's really hard to own an urban myth, right? Like, yeah, you can't no even track the authors of it. It changes with every telling, but like this, you can actually- Yeah, and like you can, you can own your specific version of it, but you can't necessarily own the thing as a whole. Um, and I think that's why we get things like, I mean, the scary stories to tell in the dark books, which, you know, again, I grew up with. Um, those, so many of them are like just classic urban legends or pieces of folklore, but- those versions are specific to those books. So that I think is usually, again, I, I'm not an expert in intellectual property law, so I might not be the person to talk to about that. Um, but it is things like where, when, when people do publish stories to like no sleep um, to the, the no sleep subreddit, which is kind of one of the, one of the big repositories for creepypasta like stories these days, you know, people are much more protective about like, yes, this is a story that I wrote. This is not in the public domain. It is my work. You cannot use it without my permission. And like, that makes sense, you know, and it, it's one of those things where part of the issue with being an internet based content creator in any capacity is that a lot of folks grow up thinking, oh, if it's on the internet, it's fair use for anything. Uh, and it's not necessarily. Maybe there was an opportunity to teach stuff about this, like in, in schools or what have you when like, I, but I don't really know. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough that I wasn't quite digitally native. Um, so a lot of the things that successive generations have been dealing with, uh, in terms of like how you approach the internet and like how teachers are dealing with approaching the internet is very different from what my experience was. So I, I don't really know that there are necessarily answers for that, but people do often seem to think that if something's on the internet, it's fair game. And that's not usually the case. <laughs> well, there's a level of complexity too. Like I've had stuff developed off of tweets and yeah. technically while Twitter doesn't claim ownership, they actually still technically kind of own oh, your because tweet. Oh, because it appeared so on the platform? It appeared on the platform and you're technically signing that, you know, because like, you know, you can capture a tweet and post it in a Yahoo article or something and yep. repurpose it as yep. you see fit. So there's a lot of weird, sticky territory there. There is, yeah. Um, and, you know, as someone who has also, uh, you know, written in other capacities for, for um, you know, various news organizations online, there, there were always... Uh, we always had to be really careful about um, including embedded social media, you know, so like Instagram stuff, we were not allowed to include, you know, because the, the photographs very clearly belonged to the people who 
had posted them. Um, tweets were a little were a little more vague, but I think things have been catching up where they're like, well, okay, it's not a picture, but words people still own the things they say. So, right, yeah, it is it is a little bizarre. <laughs> Do you think this genre like will exist forever now, or is it something that's kind of like of this moment, the social web moment, and then it's going to kind of fold out or, or turn back into urban legends? Like, are we just going to kind of is it going to fold back into that? That's a good question. I I'm not totally sure. I mean, I think one of the one of the the internet is a is, is a terrific and a terrible place at the same time. Um, <laughs> it's it's like Twitter. Talking, I'm talking about Twitter. Yeah, Twitter, yeah. yeah <laughs> it's 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 great and it's also awful. Um, and I think the one of the positive things about the internet is it does offer all of this space to do all this really interesting creative work. It offers a, a different medium to do it in um, because I, I, I there's something about you know, watching a Twitter web series that is meant to be found footage that is episodic and happening, like you, you are experiencing it as it goes, as opposed to watching a film that is found footage where like, it has been found, it has been pieced together. So like, the incident, as far as we're concerned, have already happened. Whereas there's an immediacy, I think, in like YouTube stuff. So I think the internet and, and most creepypasta also a lot of a lot of creepypasta stories unfolded serially. Um, so like I'm thinking of um, like the Pen Pal series, which was a no sleep series originally written by a guy named Dathan Auerbach. Um, and he originally he eventually actually developed that into a full novel and published it as that. But, uh, you know, over a long space of time, he was posting these these episodes basically for for this whole series. So we got to experience the story in real time as it was kind of happening. Um, and I, I think because of that, uh, the, the internet does give us ways to explore these things that I don't think we can get from other mediums. Uh, and I kind of hope, the hope is that, you know, it continues to give us the space to do so. And we also, like, we can collaborate with people. Like, I can work on a story with someone who lives halfway across the world, you know, which I couldn't have done you know, two decades ago. Um, so I, I kind of have, and that's one of the great things about like, you know, the SCP foundation or, or, or the backrooms is that, you know, people from everywhere can contribute to it. Um, so I, I kind of hope it's going to stick around and just continue to evolve and continue to adapt. But honestly, who, who knows? <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, Chuck, do you have anything else you want to ask? Uh, no, I think I'm good. That's fascinating. I mean, I, I, I do have, but it's going to be a deep dive. Anything I ask at this point, you know, deep dive. <laughs> Uh, that's awesome. All right, this has been fantastic. I do ask, uh, Lucia, before we go, yeah, I ask all my expert guests if there's something in the background of their mind that they can't get rid of. Like, are you obsessed with anything outside of Creepypasta right now? Like, what's your most recent obsession? Uh, I, I think I've actually addressed most of them. Like, to be honest, this is what I spent a lot of my time thinking about. <laughs> You're like a 99% Creepypasta person? Yeah, it's I'm 99% Creepypasta and like 1% coffee or something like that. <laughs> That's awesome. Those are the things where I am. So, like, I, again, I, I mostly I'm 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 paying attention to like the things that are that are continuing to evolve and you know like seeing where the backrooms go and all sorts of stuff like that. So that's <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much to be for being on the show and Chuck. Thank you for being on the show too. This is awesome. super fun. Yeah, excellent. Uh, Thanks, and, guys. Where can I find each of you, Chuck? Where where can we find you online and and what should we look out for? Uh, you can always find me on the Hell Realm Bird site that is Twitter at Chuck Wendy. <laughs> uh, blog is terribleminds.com, and I have two books out recently. Uh, a, a spooky book for adults called The Book of Accidents and a spooky book for kids called Dustin Grimm. I really enjoyed The Book of Accidents. Oh, <laughs> I just you. finished it like maybe three weeks ago. It was great. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Hey, Alicia, where can we find you? Um, you can find me. Um, I, I do have a Twitter under my actual name, which is just at Lucia Peters. Uh, I am, I'm not often on that one. You're more likely to find me at the Ghost in My Machines Twitter account, which is at GhostMachine13. Uh, my website is theghostinmymachine.com. And uh, again, if you feel like picking up my book, please do that. It is called Dangerous Games to Play in the Dark. <laughs> do. Great. All right. Thank you both. And uh, I really appreciate you hanging out. Yeah, thank this you. This was lots of fun. Thanks, team. 
All right, everybody, that's it for another episode of Way Too Interested. Um, if you heard that sound, that's the hound sound of my hands rubbing back and forth, which I'm sorry for. <laughs> anyway, have a great day. Thank you for listening. Please tell your friends about the show. Please rate the show on iTunes. Thank you to the Gregory Brothers for our awesome theme song. Thank you to Eric Johnson for helping with production. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. I will see you next time. And we've got some, like I said, we've got some really fun guests coming up for 2022. Oh, I do want to say, if you have a guest or somebody that you think would be good on the show, please at me at Twitter, at Gavin Purcell. I would love to hear from you, if for no other reason, just to hear what you think about the show. But I would love to meet and hear from more people that you think would be good guests. Um, Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.